0: Hello, and welcome to the ABA Journal's Modern Law Library. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer for The Journal. Today, we have with us Ed Walters, who's the CEO and co-founder of Fastcase, an online legal research software company based in Washington, D.C. Recently, he's the editor of the new book, Data-Driven Law, and he joins us today. Now, Ed, thank you for being with us. My first question for you is, putting together this book, what was the original motivation? Well, I think the idea was... To
1: learn from other disciplines. I mean, if you look at finance or medicine or sports, almost every other thing in the world is using data to make better decisions. Everything except law. And we hear it time and again. So clients will say, you know, especially corporate clients, we make all of these decisions in our business, you know, from marketing to HR using data and we try to track these things to do better every year. We do this in every part of our business except for law. Law is just a crapshoot. And so the aspiration behind this was to use data in law firms in the same way that we use it everywhere else and to catalog that, to put it into a book, recognizing it's early days, right? I mean, no one, no one is an expert at this yet, but try to take some of the you know, best thinkers about this and get them to contribute a chapter into a book that kind of catalogs what it means to have a data-driven law firm. So that was the idea. Just try to do better in law the same things we've done, you know, use data to do better in almost every other
0: industry. So that's interesting because you start the book by talking about how lawyers are answering questions that clients have with hunches. And I'm curious what you mean by that specifically. Maybe there's some examples that come to mind. But also, this is the way Presumably law has been done for some time. So what's the harm with these, these hunches that lawyers are operating on?
1: Yeah, well, so clients bring some of their most important problems to lawyers, right? So corporate clients will have bet the company litigation. They will need to understand risk that they face. They'll need to make an important decision, deciding whether to acquire a company or not, what the tax implications of something will be. Families will bring their most pressing matters to lawyers. You know, will I win custody of my child? What's going to happen in this divorce? For criminal matters, is this a good plea deal or a bad plea deal? If I don't take the plea deal, even if I'm innocent, will I prevail at trial? You know, in litigation, there are a million questions like, are we going to get a good result from this judge? Am I going to win the case? How much is this case worth? Should we settle the case or how much should we offer in settlement? And these questions are pivotal. They're the most important questions that families or companies will face, right? And when they bring these questions to lawyers, we answer those questions based on very limited experiences. The experiences that the individual lawyer or at best, maybe the law firm has handled. So, you know, if you bring an employment contract to an employment lawyer, You know, she might have 30 similar engagements in the past. She might be an expert in, you know, kind of contract law. But really, at the end of the day, that's a very small data set, right? When a client brings a matter to a lawyer and says, I have a settlement offer for $1.2 million. Should we take it or not? A lawyer or a law firm might have, you know, two dozen cases that are similar, litigations that are like this one that they can draw on for experience in deciding whether to settle that case. But really, I mean, this is very, very small data sets. So statisticians or economists have names for decisions that we make with very small data sets. They would call that a hunch. How much is my case worth? Isn't like a number answer, right? How much is my case worth? You don't answer that question by saying it's worth, I don't know, $1.6 million, right? The answer to that question is a distribution. You show what the distribution of outcomes is in cases like this one. All the questions I just talked about. Is this a good settlement for the case? Uh, These are data questions. Is this a good settlement offer for the case? Should I settle for this amount? Is driven by two things. One, what is my chance for success at trial? What's the probability of an outcome and what is the distribution of outcomes, right? And then, what does this settlement offer look like based on settlement offers in cases just like this one? So these are data questions, right? But we answer them with anecdote. We answer them with our personal experiences as lawyers. And you know, I think an economist would just say, these are hunches. These are decisions that are based on very, very limited data at best. Now, look, I don't fault lawyers for making a lot of these decisions with hunches. I mean, it's the best we can do in some cases, right? A good lawyer would say, I'm I'm basing this on my years of experience in the market, and that's the best anyone can hope for. But going forward, I think we can do better, right? So these these questions aren't unknowable. They're just unknown. It's not like we'll never have the answers. We just don't have them yet. The idea behind this book is that you know, if you could get some of the data, or when we can get some of the data, how does law change? How do legal services change? How does the practice of law look different in the presence of more information about the practice?
0: So on that point, I thought one of the things that struck me was the breadth of topics covered in the book. And so I'm curious if you can give us maybe a quick rundown of the topics from the more introductory to the more in-depth that you cover in this new book.
1: Sure. So uh, one thing I'll say is that the authors of the chapters are heroes of mine. I am thrilled that we got some of the people to write chapters that we were able to. So if you don't mind, I'll just sort of do a quick review of the table of contents. Um, And I'll just talk about what's in the book and the different topics, but at a very, very quick level. So I I do the intro, a more in-depth version of what we were just talking about. Ken Grady has a chapter about mining legal data, about how to pull this kind of data out of law firms, big and small. Kingsley Martin, the founder of KM Standards uh, and Contract Standards, has a chapter about deconstructing contracts, about how to use data analytics and data analysis to standardize contract language. So we can negotiate terms and not language for contracts. Uh, That would be great. So, uh, Aaron Cruz from Littler has a chapter about the use of data and big data in employment law. This is a deep dive into how to use data in a vertical within the legal practice. Stephen Wolfram is kind of a hero of mine. He is like the author of the Wolfram Mathematica language. And if you've heard of Wolfram Alpha, it is an attempt to use kind of machine learning to understand a variety of different kind of information subjects. So he has a chapter called Computational Law with the idea that you might be able to reduce legal obligations into code. In the same way that he created Mathematica, the first programming language that expresses math and code, he has a beautiful, wonderful idea that you might be able to reduce legal obligations to code, whether it be criminal or civil, contract or tort, you might be able to code these obligations. You hear this a lot right now around blockchain, for example. I think Stephen Wolfram's ambitions are far beyond that. And so uh, it's it's a pretty fascinating chapter. And, you know, uh, a genius i mean the <laughs> the guy thinks about this at a totally different gear than the rest of us have chapter 6 amora grossman has a chapter about data science and electronic discovery about how we benchmark the capacity for electronic discovery and how we can you know really understand electronic discovery as a data science instead of like kind of an anecdotal hit or miss exercise in Chapter Seven, a number of different authors from Avo write about quantifying the quality of legal services. Avo obviously has a lot of experience in this. They have you know really kind of pioneered the idea that you might be able to rate legal services for lawyers, which is hard. I mean, no one really knows how to how to do this today. But so Nika Kabiri, Ed uh, Sarasad, and Rahul Dodia from Avo, really talk about how they source the data, how they use data to evaluate the quality of lawyering, and how to use demographic data to figure out who needs legal help, but who isn't getting it, which is also interesting for you know, figuring out how to serve unserved markets. David Colarusso has a chapter talking about linear regression which sounds like totally math nerdy, but it really is uh, talking about finding bias in big data and how you make educated guesses with data, how you are able to draw conclusions from data and not for you know, data scientists, but for lawyers. So it's a really interesting look at linear regression, but like intro to linear regression. You hear all, all kinds of people talking about like AI and, you know, fancy artificial intelligence tools when a lot of it is just linear regression. So it's a it's an interesting look at that. Kumar Jayasurya has a chapter talking about data mining and data integrity and using data teams inside of a law firm to accomplish goals, doing things like in a very practical way with data, like how to discover internal expertise in the firm. Who is the best person to do something? How do you rate uh, lateral hires? How do you expand the services that a law firm offers? And then Bill Henderson brings it home at the end, talking about intrapreneurship and finding ways of changing the culture of law firms, I think, to allow a data-driven mindset. So you're right. I mean, it really is a very It's a diverse group of authors, and they cover a really broad-ranging set of topics. And I think the most important thing to say about it is that this is for everybody, right? Data is not just for, like, the data scientists in, like, a giant law firm, right? We're making these kinds of data-driven decisions inside of law firms all the time. They're just not flagged as data-driven decisions, And the book isn't targeted for, like, you know, expert data scientists. It's targeted for everybody. And it's, you know, written and edited so anybody can read it as a way of understanding how our law practice is going to change. And I hope for the benefit of clients.
0: That's interesting. Let me jump in there, though, on the, the AVO point and data. It was earlier this week that AVO came to an agreement with the New York Attorney General's office to clarify how their rating system functioned uh, what data was used as well as how it would be presented previously the company had said that the lawyer ratings were unbiased and under the agreement with the new york ag they're no longer allowed to do that they're also paying a financial penalty for the cost of the investigation so i'm curious i think oftentimes when people talk about data they think of it as being objective they think of it as not having the same level of open interpretation that, say, the written word has. So I'm curious to your thoughts after editing this book and and putting these various chapters together, where you think maybe those boundaries are in regards to data's ability to enlighten us or maybe in some cases obfuscate what's going on.
1: That's a great point. So people sort of imagine that data is objective like that when you use data what you end up with is completely unbiased results and you see this in people who are using data to do things like set bail and their their goals are good aspirations to try to take you know protected class ideas outside of bail setting the problem is that data often reflects bias right so you you have a lot of bias in the data sets themselves And it's kind of hard to escape that. You know, if you have a history of racial injustice in a country, the data is going to reflect that. And if you use data to overcome that bias, you know, it's kind of hard to do that without infecting that data analysis with the bias that it reflects. In Avo's case, you know, I think if you look at their chapter in this book, they really go to great lengths to try and get the data model and the data cleanliness and the data integrity right. It's fascinating. You know, you you sort of see the AVO score. It's a very simple number, but there's a lot that goes into that. You'll be very surprised when you read it how much goes into trying to get that right in the first place.
0: So one of the things that I was left wondering after reading the book was the business case for the various topics that you just listed that are covered in it. I'm curious whether you view this from a, a cost-benefit analysis or an opportunity-cost lens because to get a data operation up and running can be very labor and money intensive. So I'm curious how you weigh those things between the benefits that you see data creating, but the cost that it could take to get there.
1: Yeah, I don't think the costs need to be that high. I mean, you certainly could. You could spend like a fortune, you know, really investing in team and data assets and things like that, but I don't think you have to. So. You know, at Fast Case, we're working with a law firm right now that just wants to understand its costs. You know, so when it does beauty contests, it wants to start doing some lightweight, fixed fee engagements. And so what they're doing is they're just mining their own billing system and looking at, you know, some very common types of matters that they handle. And they're just looking at what it costs. And if there's outliers, they want to see what makes them outliers. You know, that doesn't require like a huge outlay of money. It just requires some curiosity and excel. <laughs> so <laughs> you can do it at a very expensive level, but I don't think you have to, so on the cost side. On the benefit side, I, I think that law is gonna work like this in the future. So, you know, I, I'm a lawyer. I serve clients for a long time, but now at Fast Case I'm a client. You know, there's like four or five law firms who do work for us. And you know, whenever we're trying to figure out who to use for an engagement, we'll sit down with them and we'll say, like, you know, what have you done like this? How much does it cost? What's our likely outcome here? What are the costs likely to be? You know, and there's a handful of firms who say, trust us, it'll cost whatever our rate is times the number of hours it takes us. We're great at this, and we're efficient. And then there's other firms who say, look, you know, we've done twenty-two of these the least expensive was $104,000. The most expensive was $310,000. The mean is 265. The median is 240. I think yours is going to come in a little lower than that. So I'm going to, you know, estimate like $220,000. Trust me, just pay what it costs you is not going to win that business, right? The one that shows the distribution is going to win the business. So as a as a, just a matter of being competitive as a law firm, just a matter of winning more business, it's kind of hard to beat data. Every corporate client in America is gonna go for the firm that says, you know, here's what our experience has been. And again, it doesn't have to be like a, you know, a fancy bar chart or a linear regression or something else, right? It can just be like, you know, here are the outcomes of 20 matters that you know, we've anonymized the data from. So I I think that the costs don't necessarily need to be very high, and I think the benefits are gonna be very, very high. Let me put it this way. It's hard to imagine that 10 years from now, we're gonna keep doing this the way we are. At least for corporate clients, they're going to insist that their law firms answer these questions with empirical data. They're going to wanna know what's happened before, and they're gonna wanna be able to set a budget. They're the buyers, they have all the power in the relationship, and they're going to insist on shifting the risk from themselves as the buyer to law firms as the sellers, at least for corporate firms. So if that's the way it's gonna work 10 years from now, I mean, you have to invest for the future, it's like R&D. And if you don't, we're gonna have like haves and have nots based on data. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but there's gonna be firms that are winning business all the time because they are able to use data to deliver different kinds of legal services.
0: So you have this new book out about data and law, and you know you, you run this company that's a data-focused uh, research software company. I'm curious what you're reading right now to continue building your knowledge in this space.
1: So I am reading Kevin Ashley's book about artificial intelligence in law, uh, which is fascinating. I'm reading Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence, and I'm reading rereading Kevin Kelly's The Inevitable, which is amazing. Such a good book. My, my reading right now is a little bit academic because I also teach the law of robots at Georgetown, and I'm right in the middle of the semester. So I am sort of voraciously rereading the, the readings in my syllabus, as well as a couple of books sort of around that.
0: Well, excellent. Ed, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today about this new book. This is a great new book that you have put out. I very much appreciate you taking that time with us.
1: Jason, thank you for having me. This has been a blast. I really appreciate you
0: having me on. And that's it for another episode of the ABA Journal's Modern Law Library. Thanks to our listeners for joining us today. If you like what you heard, you can find and rate us on Apple Podcasts and it helps others find us as well. For the ABA Journal and the Modern Law Library Podcast, this is Jason Teche signing off.